All right. Uh, so as we continue, we've been in a series looking at Christ's life, and as we continue that, this week we come to his baptism. And when you look at the account of his baptism, very rarely does it exceed six or seven verses, but it's in all four Gospels, which is your first clue that it's something huge, because the Gospels don't always cover the same stuff. How's this? Hear me, people in the back? Hey, oh, all right. Um, I'll just put that back in my pocket then. So we're looking at the baptism of Christ, which is such a beautiful, incredible event. And it really has so much, just like we've seen hopefully in these other stories, there's so much to unpack in the details of these accounts. So they appear in all four gospels, but we're gonna be looking at the two accounts in Matthew and in John. And so if you will, I'd like to start in Matthew chapter 3, looking at the account of Jesus' baptism. This is beginning in verse 11 with John the Baptist speaking. So this is Matthew 3, starting in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then if we look at the account in John, this is John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. And again, we start with the perspective of John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for answered prayers. I know how many people were just covering this morning with prayer, asking for clear skies, and you have delivered in every way, and we thank you for that. There's something about feeling the breeze while we're out here worshiping you and hearing birds and feeling the warmth of the sun what an incredible opportunity we have to celebrate you and to praise you and to worship you in the midst of your creation. It's beautiful, and so I thank you for that. And as we prepare to study your word and to look at what you've taught us and what you've given us, I ask that these would be your words, that you would open our ears, open our hearts to know you, to understand you, to see you more, to know you better, so that we can be your church, we can be your bride. We thank you for everything. We celebrate you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. And so just like we have, you know, this, this week it was a little kind of odd preparing the outline because honestly a lot of the details in this baptism overlap. So some of the points, there might be some overlapping, but that's okay because it's a conversation about Jesus and we can never have enough of that, right? So we're going to move through it like we're moving through this series chronologically. We're going to start with the first thing that happened. And the first thing we see in these gospel accounts of the baptism of Christ actually occur before Jesus even gets on the scene. What did John the Baptist say? This was in the account in both Matthew and in John. He talks about the prophecies that John the Baptist had given regarding Christ. And he says, the one who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so just like we looked at in the story of Christ's birth, it's those little details that reinforce the deity of Christ and reinforce the person of who Christ is. And you may be thinking, hopefully not, but if you're tempted to think, okay, that's a small detail, it's important that we know that. Ephesians 4 tells us, and this is a burden on the leadership of the church, we've had many conversations related to this, that our role as leadership is to equip you all to do the work of the ministry to equip you to have the conversations with your coworkers, with your friends, with your families. And one of the ideas you may encounter as you're talking to these people in the world is that Jesus wasn't fully God. You can find plenty of belief systems that will tell you Jesus surrendered part of his deity. Jesus was never really God in the same way God the Father was. And John the Baptist, with that simple phrase, he ranks before me because he was before me. It's these little details that add together and provide an irrefutable proof that Jesus is God. So don't skip over those small details. And then Jesus actually arrives to his baptism. And what do we see? We see John the Baptist says, man, this is weird being stationary. I want to move, but I'm worried if I pick this up, I'll drop it. So I'm sorry if I get antsy and if you see my knees start to drift. It's because I've got too much energy to be anchored like this. But John the Baptist says, when Jesus first comes to him, what does John the Baptist say? He says, no, no, I can't baptize you. Are you kidding me? You need to baptize me. This isn't right. And I think that humility and that awareness of who Christ is is so powerful. Because I want to frame the events of the baptism, but in today's world. If you will, and this may seem a little bit out there, but think about it. I mean, think if Jesus came today to be baptized today in the culture of today. Tell me most people wouldn't be pulling their phone out for a selfie, right? Like, hey, did you see who I got to baptize? Look who stopped by the river. Maybe they wouldn't go the selfie route, but how many people would be mentally composing that post of, so today I got to baptize Jesus. Here's what I want to share with you all, right? And their first reaction, I think, for a lot of us today, because today's world has become so egocentric, is the first reaction to something incredible like Jesus coming to you would be, well, this is a big deal for me. This is, this is huge. And I got to admit, that would be tempting. If I was getting ready to preach and I saw Jesus come in the back doors, that would be, that would be weird. And it would be tempting to be like, wow, Jesus showed up to hear me preach. Cool. I'm doing something right. And I would be tempted to make it about me. But John the Baptist, his immediate reaction is, no, no, you're, you're the Messiah. You're Christ. I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. And I love the humility and the awareness in John's response. And then we look at Jesus' response. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, this must be so to fulfill all righteousness. 
And this is a huge moment. This is a, a, a history-defining moment where Jesus, for the first public time to inaugurate his ministry, is identifying himself with the sinners he came to save. We talked about it when Christ was born, Emmanuel, God with us. I will never get tired of the joy and the privilege of reminding people that Jesus came for relationship. Jesus identified with the sinners. John the Baptist is saying, this is a baptism of repentance. You don't need that. And Jesus is saying, no, this is to fulfill righteousness. Jesus is identifying himself with the people he came to save. And that is mind-blowing. That the God of the universe would identify himself with the sinful people of the world. And we see this throughout scripture. This is Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. For Christ, and then 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And make no mistake about this. This is another thing that we want to equip you guys so that you know you understand. Jesus did not sacrifice any of his righteousness. Jesus did not sacrifice any of his holiness. Jesus never was anything less than perfectly holy and righteous. So when he identified himself with sinners, it was not giving up his godness. He was not letting go of any aspect of that. He was choosing to identify with us, but he was always perfectly righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did Jesus identify himself with us? So that we could identify ourselves with him. Jesus identified, Jesus willingly identified with us so that we might be identified with him. And that's incredible. If you're here today and you've been baptized, if you're, if you're a professing believer, don't ever lose sight of that. That you are now identified with the righteousness of of God. And if you're listening to this, if you're here today or you're listening online, oh nice, that turned. James, you're, you're a wizard with your remote angling of things. If you're listening online and you don't know who Jesus is, know that we have been given that opportunity to be identified with the righteousness of God because of how he loves us. And we see that in Jesus's response to John's resistance to the baptism. And so after Jesus assures John that this is proper, this is fitting, John consents and he baptizes Jesus. And I want to make a point here about the baptism. And this is a small point, but it's a point that has become, unfortunately, a large point of division in a lot of different denominations and churches. The Bible is clear that Jesus was immersed in the water. There is a word for sprinkle. And there is a word for to dip, to immerse. The word for to sprinkle with water is not used at all in the account of Jesus' baptism. It is the word for immersion. I don't want that to become a point of division for us. That's not something to be legalistic about. Do I prefer immersion? Yes. And you'll see why. Because it's very clearly meant to model and reflect Christ's burial and resurrection. But in this church, we've seen baptism by sponge. We've seen baptism by a cup of water over a kiddie pool. I've seen baptisms in creeks and in bathtubs and in swimming pools and in the ocean. There is nothing inherently special about where a baptism has to physically take place. 
Do I prefer immersion? Yes. Is that the only way that you can be baptized? No. So don't let that become legalistic. But Jesus was immersed. He was immersed in the water. And in his immersion and then immersion, we see a foreshadowing of what was to come. And that's the other thing we see about Jesus. I've said over the past couple of weeks is Jesus could not be distracted from his purpose. Everything that Jesus did was to point to why he came, to point to God the Father. And this baptism was the very first example of that. And he said this to his disciples later on. If you're familiar with the accounts of the Gospels, you know that Jesus multiple times told people, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back three days later. And they didn't get it. And one of the ways that Jesus did that was using baptism as an analogy. Luke 12, 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So Jesus was using his baptism to demonstrate the truth of what was to happen for the people who he knew would witness it. And that's the beauty of the symbolism of baptism for us today as believers. And so we've moved through, we, we see John the Baptist before Jesus gets there, then Jesus gets there, and then Jesus is baptized. And then Jesus comes out of the water for one of, I mean, this has got to be top three moments. I wish I could have seen that out of the Bible. Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens open up and the spirit, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and you hear the voice of the father thunder from the heavens. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Imagine, like imagine today, look up. If you've got, if you don't have sunglasses, don't look up. But if you've got sunglasses, look up, right? Imagine the skies opening up in the whole... I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around what that would look like. Because we talk about, oh, the skies opened up and poured down rain, right? But we mean the clouds. I, I can't imagine what the heavens opening up and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and the voice of the Father thundering. The awe that had to come over the people in that moment. And again, this is such a crucial detail to see all three members of the Trinity in this moment. Because just like I said, people will try and tell you that Jesus wasn't fully God. Jesus surrendered part of his righteousness. There's equally dangerous belief out there that the Trinity is not, it's not really three distinct persons. You have God, and he can be God the Father, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, but not at the same time. And that's just heretical. And so this is a verse that when you're engaging with those conversations about, wait a minute, the Trinity? No, that, it's really just one. You can't be both God and Jesus at the same time. This verse demonstrates that you can. And so again, I want us to pay attention to these little details because I want us to be ready for the conversations. I want us to know why we believe what we profess to believe. I don't want you to ever say to someone, I believe in the Trinity. Why? Because uh, Sam told me to. No, I want you to believe in the Trinity because you look at the Bible and you see the truth of this beautiful, incredible Godhead. And that's what we see in the baptism of Jesus. And for the second half of this message, and this may seem brief, we're trying to be, if you got the emails, you know we said it would be a little bit shorter. We're mindful of the sun. We're mindful that, you know, there are kids here. We're going to try and keep these outdoor sermons a little bit shorter. The service is a little bit uh, shorter for you guys. So for the second half of this message, I want to then look at, okay, well, if this is the baptism of Christ, if this is all that is packed into the baptism of Christ, what does that mean for us? Why do we get baptized today? What, what is the significance of this, right? I've described this several times as an incredibly significant event in the story of history. So why do we get baptized today? And the first thing I want to talk about is what baptism is not. Baptism is not salvation. 
baptism does not impart salvation. The Bible is very clear about what salvation is. This is Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then we also have Acts. This is Acts 2, starting in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Pay note to that. Now, when they had heard this, they had heard there was a hearing of the gospel. There was a hearing of God's message. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is from you, or I'm sorry, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with any, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, why did I pick that passage? Because there's a phrase in there that makes it kind of confusing, honestly. What does he say? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so, so are you saying, I'm trying to follow with you here, Sam. Romans 10 made it pretty clear that baptism is not salvation, but that passage in Acts kind of seems like it is. But we have to understand the word for there. The word for is not saying to receive. The word for is saying because of. And we see the same use of the word for in verse 39. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who hear. Because the promise is for you and for your children and all who hear. So what it's saying, it's not saying repent and be baptized to receive forgiveness of your sins. It's saying repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible is very clear that baptism is not salvation. But it makes it no less powerful and meaningful and beautiful. And I want to look at that now. So what is baptism? If baptism is not for salvation, if baptism, right, John the Baptist's baptism, it says in both Matthew and John, it was to reveal the Messiah to Israel. Well, the Messiah has been revealed. So if baptism is not what John the Baptist was doing, if baptism is not salvation, then what is baptism? And this is, if you're here and you've been baptized, let this remind you of the weight of what you've done. Let this remind you of the beauty of what you've done, what you have professed, what you have declared to the world. If you're here and you haven't been baptized, maybe this will answer some questions for you. Maybe this will provide some clarity or some further explanation so you can understand why we get baptized. This is Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is an identification with the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is, an, it is a recognition and it is a connection and acknowledgement and a profession of this inward reality that I am dead to sin and I am raised in newness of life. That is why we get baptized, to declare outwardly what we know to be true within us. And it's beautiful. It's incredible. But, okay. Uh, don't mess this up. All right. Oh, nope. I messed it up. I messed it up, Sam. 
I'm just happy we're together. There are going to be hiccups. I'm happy we're together. All right, so baptism is symbolic of dying with Christ and being raised. Oh, that was so much easier. See, I'm learning. None of us are perfect. I do these things so you know I'm not perfect. That's, this was all carefully thought out at a time. Who said amen? Come on. So baptism is symbolic of dying with Christ and being raised in newness of life. I want to look at both halves of that because we as Christians can never forget either side. The first, dying with Christ. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Talking about Jesus. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Philippians 2, 8, in being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 3, 10, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Listen to this last phrase, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want to ask a very somber and very serious question right now. How in the world do you expect to follow Christ if you are unwilling to follow him to the cross? If Jesus' path took him to the cross, how can I expect to follow him if I am unwilling to walk that same path? If I am unwilling to go to Golgotha and be crucified on the same cross that Jesus was, how can I claim to be willing to follow him with my all and my everything? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Radical Cross, added to your reading list. It's phenomenal. But Tozer summarizes it this way. He says, We are unwilling to accept and experience the fellowship of the Savior's sufferings, which means acceptance of his cross. How can we have and know the blessed intimacy of the Lord Jesus if we are unwilling to take the route which he has demonstrated? In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till they put themselves on the cross. We want to be saved, but we insist Christ do all the dying. So if you're here today and you've been baptized, ask yourself, do you remember that you have been crucified with Jesus on the cross? That the old self, the sinful self, has been crucified, has been put to death. Death has no dominion over you. Death has no claim on you. Sin has no power over you because of who you are in Christ. And that's not to say we won't ever sin again. That's not the removal of the presence of sin. But it's saying that sinful self has been crucified and is dead is buried. That's why we get baptism, to proclaim the reality of that beautiful truth, that the sinful self is dead and in the ground. Listen to Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus has, uh, B, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified our flesh with its passions and desires. They should no longer reign in you. Our passions and desires of the sinful flesh, they do not dictate what we do. They do not dictate who we are. They do not define us because they have been crucified with Jesus on the cross. Amen? What are those passions? What are those sinful desires? If you're curious, read the rest of Galatians 5. Pay particular attention to verses 19 through 21. It'll talk about what those sinful desires that have been crucified are. So if you're here today and you've been baptized, maybe you need the challenge, the reminder that envy has been crucified within you. That slander, that gossip, that division 
has been crucified within you, that bitterness has been crucified within you, that these things do not mark our lives. They cannot because they have been put to death with Christ on the cross. That is the beauty of the symbolism of baptism for the believer today. And then the second half, don't think it ends there. It doesn't end within the ground. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. We don't stay under the water. There's resurrection to new life. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 8. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not just about dying to self. It's not just about dying to sin. The other half of that is being raised in newness of life to God and to his glory. And so if you're here and you've been baptized, maybe that's the part that you need to be reminded of. I know I need to be reminded of both of these. That is what God has brought me to over the past weeks as I've been studying this. I need to be reminded that my old self has died with Christ. I need to be reminded that I can't wallow in that because I've been raised to newness of life with Christ. And that's my burden, that is my plea, is that Christians around the world would remember both of these things. That Christians are not people of defeat. Christians are not people of enslavement to sin. We are not entrapped by this. We have been freed from this. It is dead. We have been raised in newness of life. And that's incredible. It's that newness of life that should mark everything we do. Our words, our actions, the way we interact with our coworkers, our family, our neighbors, the way we interact with each other as a church body should be defined by the newness of life in Christ. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when Christians say, I don't have that in me, they're lying. Because it is not I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, I'm not saying we're freed from the presence of sin in this life. I'm not saying Christians don't sin. I'm not saying Christians don't struggle with envy and gossip and slander and division. These are still very much afflictions in our lives, but they don't have power over us. We are not enslaved to them. We have no obligation to them. We are raised in newness of life. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I love the word seek in that. We've gone through, we've demonstrated the Christian is one who is dead to sin. The old self has been crucified. The Christian is one who has been raised to newness of life. So what does that mean? If we have been raised to newness of life, what does it say? Seek the things above. 
Seek the things of God. It's not passive. The Christian life is not a sit back and wait for this to happen. The Christian life is not a hope you stumble across this. Hope that in the natural flow of things, you'll figure it out. Seek the things above. So the last question I want to ask you all, can you honestly describe, can I honestly describe myself as seeking the things above, as giving my all to pursue the things above, as devoting myself to finding and searching for and knowing the things of God, the things of Christ? That is the newness of life. That is the charge on our lives. I want this to be a church of people who are dead to sin and aware of that. I want this church to be a church of people who are alive in Christ, who recognize and celebrate and live in the freedom and the power of newness of life in Christ. I want this to be a body that seeks the things above. And we see all of that in the beauty, the beauty of baptism, the incredible, indescribable moment of Jesus being baptized to identify with us so that we could identify with him. I love it. I love baptism. In the interest of time, I'm not going to share my full baptism story now, but I would love to talk about this with you guys. If you have questions about baptism, if you're unsure about baptism, please, let's have a conversation. Shoot us an email. Send me a text. Reach out to us. It is such a privilege and an honor for the believer to get baptized. And I love it. And that's what we see in this story of Christ. So again, if you were here today and you've been baptized, do you remember that the old self is dead? Do you remember that you have been raised in newness of life? If you're here and you haven't been baptized, hopefully this clarified some things. If it didn't, let's have a further conversation on it. I love that stuff, right? But here's my challenge for you all this week. We read 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. I challenge you to read 1 John 2 every day this week. Same chapter every day. With that verse in mind, ask yourself, if I'm claiming to abide in Christ, am I walking as he walked? And with that question in mind, read 1 John 2, and then let's see what sort of conversations we have. Reach out to me. Let me know what God is showing you in that chapter. I want to hear about what God is doing in this body because I believe he is doing incredible things. And I think it starts with the newness of life that Jesus made available to us with his sacrifice. May baptism always be a reminder of that beauty. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for every word that we just read. We thank you, as it says in Romans 6, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Just that vivid imagery of shackles being broken and prisoners being set free. Why would we as prisoners who have been set free ever choose to remain in the jail cell? So teach us to embrace newness of life in Christ every moment of our day. Teach us to surrender in you and to what you're doing in us. We love you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.